This episode is brought to you by the Elite Academy, formerly known as hrvcourse.com. The Elite Academy now offers in-depth online courses on multiple subjects. So if you're enjoying the content of this podcast, but you're looking for a more structured and logical progression, looking at the science and application of these subjects, check out the Elite Academy at elitehrv.com academy. Welcome to the Elite HRV Podcast, where experts share their experience using heart rate variability and other biomarkers to optimize health and human performance. Welcome back to the Elite HRV Podcast. This is your host, Jason Moore, and today we have Dr. Andrew Hill joining us. And Dr. Hill is one of the leading neurofeedback practitioners in the country. And so super interested to dig in with Dr. Andrew today because I love learning more about how my brain works, how my nervous system works, and how all of those systems interact. And uh, Dr. Hill has done neurofeedback, and he he likes to take a different approach. And and we actually just uh, were discussing a little before hitting record that he likes to kind of make, take approach where it's like the gym for your brain. And he probably says that way more eloquently than I do, but he's a great resource for things like neurofeedback, biohacking, brain tech advancements, healthy brain aging, concussions, nutrition, nootropics, ADHD, migraines, mindfulness, meditation. Dr. Hill, (laughs) you've done a lot. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me. Uh, I really appreciate it. And um, I know that you've been on some pretty high-profile podcasts like Joe Rogan, Ben Greedfield, Smart Drug Smarts. Um, So I really appreciate you joining us here to share information with us today. Um, But yeah, so uh, it's been a while since we've caught up. What have you been working on over the past couple of years? Yeah, so uh, about three years ago, we launched uh, Peak Brain Institute, which is um, a company dedicated to taking neurofeedback or biofeedback on the brain and taking it out of the sort of medical and psychological context a little bit and treating it much more like sort of high-end personal training where you might go in and get some specialized assessments and get a personalized plan to address something that you care a great deal about or some performance goal you have that's you know, might be a symptom kind of driven goal, or it might be a, a future performance goal that you're trying to get to, you know, very similar to how you might work with a, an elite coach if you're an athlete or something. So uh, uh, we have now five centers open for peak brain in the past few years. And um, uh, we, you know, mostly do brain mapping or quantitative EEG and neurofeedback. We do a lot of uh, mindfulness groups and instruction. We have free mindfulness groups at all our centers. Uh, we also do um, a fair amount of other you know, pro-healthy kind of talks and information things. And besides that, I teach at UCLA and do some gerontology and neuroscience instruction and try to help people understand uh, sort of a life course perspective on aging and, you know, again, agency and taking control of your healthy habits and your healthy uh, sort of processes of aging and regulation so that you have uh, you know, the best possible you uh, to operate with uh, throughout your years. That's awesome. And so, you know, in my little intro spiel there, I listed a bunch of different things that you've worked on from concussions to ADHD, migraines, mindfulness. Um, But then we kind of come back to this QEEG, quantitative EEG, 
why first what is that maybe you could give us a little overview and then why the focus on that yeah so qeeg uh quantitative eeg is a way of looking at your uh brain activity and uh eeg or brain waves or electrical patterns produced by your cortex the part of your brain that's the sort of upper layer that wraps the brain it's this massive sheet that's then wrinkled into a tight little uh, scrunched up uh, a sheet put on top of your brain for surface area reasons but the cortex is largely the part of the brain you think with and perceive with and have sort of sensory motor input and output with. And to a large extent, it's the, it's the human part um, and the most part we're aware of. And you can stick uh, wires outside the head uh, passively, measure the electricity being generated by the cortex. And we have these little CPUs in the cortex called micro columns or mini columns. And based on how fast these little CPUs are firing, we get different brain waves. So the slowest brain wave is something called delta. And that's when uh, these little microcolumns are firing about two to three times per second. Uh, we have brain waves called theta, you know, four to seven times per second, alpha, seven to about 12, and beta is above that, and there's other frequencies called gamma and some other specifics. <clears throat> and all these brain waves give us um, a coarse sense of how the different circuits are running. You know, example, if you close your eyes, the visual system in the back of your head usually goes quiet because there's not as much to process. And so most people go into an alpha mode in the back of the head. Big, strong alpha waves are produced. Uh, but if you don't produce good alpha with your eyes closed, it may be because your visual system is preparing to process information, sort of a sensory uh, filter being opened up just in case. And when you see this in a, in a brain map, uh, someone's uh, visual system isn't shutting down with their eyes closed. You might assume or you might guess, hypothesize, that somebody is a bit vigilant or maybe even hypervigilant where it's hard to disengage from the environment. Um, these might be a feature of something you, know, you might call anxiety at a higher level. But in terms of a resource level, it's sensory activation or vigilance probably. And so the process of brain mapping will measure your brain eyes closed and eyes open for several minutes each and then compare those resting baselines to a normative database of a few thousand people and get out of that uh, standard deviation map, Z-scores, that say uh, a lot about many, many features in your brain. And some of those features will be atypical, so to speak, statistically. You know, you'll be unusual because guess what? People are unusual. And so the, the point of brain mapping is not to figure out why you're not average and then try to make you average in some way. Uh, the goal is to look at the ways in which you're most unusual and try to predict which particular resources might be bottlenecked or stuck on or having some difficulty or try to find evidence of old injuries or anything else that might be a little unusual. And from those statistical sort of sore thumbs, create a model of what the person might be experiencing. And so, again, all the patterns we see in QEEG end up being uh, hypothesis generators, you know, prognostic, not diagnostic. Um, some are almost valid, you know, nearly perfect. Um, for instance, ADHD markers. If you show high uh, theta brain waves relative to beta brain waves, high theta beta ratio, especially with eyes open in the middle of the head, and high being you know two, two and a half as an adult, and probably three, four as a kid, um, markers like that are actually statistically valid to predict ADHD. So you can sort. I think it's ninety four percent accurate to sort uh, ADHD and non ADHD brains, if you will, into the correct buckets simply on a measurement of a single wire on top of the head. Um, 
Other things might or might or might not be a problem, like that vigilance I mentioned. Well, that can show up in anxiety, but maybe it shows up in somebody who's just really sensorily sort of, you know, checked in. It may not be really getting in your way, maybe. And so uh, I, I look for patterns and then try to posit if they are, you know, bottlenecks the person finds to be true, i.e. they're valid, and then two, if the person wants to work on them, if, if they're a goal. Another example might be um, the front midline of the brain is the anterior cingulate cortex, whose job it is, among other things, to decide what's important to pay attention to. So if the anterior cingulate gets a little bit extra active, meaning it shows lots of beta brain waves, you know, a couple of standard deviations, more than average, uh, then often it means the mind tends to get stuck on things and be very particular. And if it gets really bad, it tends to come along with things we might call, you know, OCD. But if it's not that severe, um, then it might just be songs getting stuck in your head. Or maybe it's that same resource you might call OCD if it was getting in your way. But if it's not getting in your way, maybe you're a high-powered, very particular CEO who's ridiculously successful and you're using that resource. So again, the goal is not to say, why aren't you average? And then point this out as a symptom or a problem. The point is to use these ways in which you're unique and, and most unusual to start painting a sort of very coarse 10,000-foot view of where the performance is, where the performance bottlenecks are, what the person might really enjoy in terms of, you know, easing resources or unsticking things or building this stuff. And then the person works with their coach at Peak Brain to develop a, uh, a plan of what's most important to go after. And we typically remap your brain and, and re reassess your attention every 20 sessions. And for instance, at Peak Brain, we do a um, brain map uh, and then uh, about 40 sessions of neurofeedback over a course of training. And so we do at least three sets of maps over that 40 sessions. And the, the, the neurofeedback is about a 30-minute session of biofeedback on those brain waves. And we typically get about a standard deviation or two or more of change in three months, 40 sessions, mm -hmm. on things like attention measurement and stress response and uh, the QEEG uh, measures themselves change uh, to that degree. So very rapid. In a few months, we can often dial down dramatically uh, executive function or attention problems, stress response issues, sleep issues, uh, seizures and migraines respond very well, PTSD markers, concussions all respond very well. So you can get very a lot of very almost rapid change from the point of view of things that change the brain. Rapid change on uh, you know, big things that might be getting in your way, or you can go after peak performance goals, you know, get deep creativity. Um, Boost T cells. There's uh, good literature, and we've seen it in our in our centers too. You can boost uh, a T cell activation with with uh, neurofeedback. So all kinds of interesting body and brain things you can do. And you know, from medical or psychological perspective, uh, and I would say there's about five thousand people in the U.S. and about ten thousand worldwide um, who do neurofeedback. And most of them are therapists of some stripe, and uh, if not, or medical or psychological perspectives, usually, or, or psychological adjacent. And they treat this like therapy or interventions, uh, treatment, and the language and the, the framing is often very much like, oh, here's what's wrong with you. Uh, here's what I will do to you, and I will see you for the next X number of months. And uh, you know, there's this, this thing being applied to you, top down, the doctor's telling you what's, what's the problem and, and uh, you know, addressing it uh, for you. And at Peak Brain, I really think this is much closer to uh, you know fitness, and so people should be given the agency and the opportunity to demystify their own health and their own physiology and dig in and take control. So my job is never to tell you what's wrong or what you have to work on. It's just to demystify the neuroscience for you and then help identify where you know the low-hanging fruit is for performance goals and uh, help you understand your own brain a little bit more.
and come up with some strategies for uh, addressing anything that's getting in your way. So we, we tend to approach this much more, as you mentioned at the beginning, like a brain gym and much less like a doctor's office. So I'm really, you know, on people's team as my other clinicians and coaches. We're on your team and you're the, you know, peak athlete, so to speak. And we're here to help you execute on your plans and your goals and, you know, what you've set your sights on. Not here to fix stuff that's wrong with you. So it's a very, you know, different perspective, even though the process we're doing is often very similar to what most of my colleagues are doing in terms of going after brain mapping and then doing the biofeedback uh, on the brain activity after that. Well, I can see clearly why in just three short years, you've been able to open five facilities already, because even though probably the average person doesn't just like see an ad in the newspaper and go, yeah, I'm going to go get my brain scanned. But uh, but as soon as you present it this way, as soon as, I mean, I'm already, I'm ready to go get my QEEG done right now because... to me, this kind of self-awareness, self-empowerment is where the vast majority of the benefit of advancements in health tech and the combination of like uh, the wearable scene and then some more uh, kind of clinical uh, advancements like this and uh, where the vast majority of the benefit has come from is empowerment of the patient and that agent sense of agency that you've described. And I say all the time with our HRV platform, I'm like, this is a self-awareness tool. There's no, um, I guess one could argue there is a bad HRV score in certain situations, but in the majority of the time, there's no bad score. It's just knowing where you're at and kind of what things you might need to address or if you're wanting to get to a different place, if at all. Some people may just want to check in and see, okay, I'm kind of happy with where I'm at. So, going to keep doing what I'm doing and that's fine too. Um, so no, that's huge. And, you know, this um, makes it so accessible. I would, I imagine people listening to this say, I didn't know that I could go get QEEG done. And, you know, where first couple of questions there, which cities are your uh, locations in? And then how long does it take to do your first QEEG? Yeah. So we have physical offices. Uh, we have a couple of big flagships. One's in the west side of Los Angeles in Culver City. The other one's in St. Louis uh, in uh, Clayton. So those are our biggest offices. And we have sort of every service offered there, free groups, uh, lots of you know, multiple stations of a very active center, um, groups meeting meditation and also information uh, education groups and things. Um, and uh, we also have some smaller offices, you know, more satellites, one in downtown Los Angeles, one in uh, Costa Mesa, which is Orange County, one in San Diego. Um, but at least a third of our clients actually work on their own brains uh, at home with our support. And for that program, we call that the remote or self program. The clients come to one of the offices and work with one of our senior coaches for about three days. And in that time, we'll map your brain and do a couple of neurofeedback sessions on you uh, with you. Uh, every day to help you practice setting up your own biofeedback sessions on your brain, you know, stopping and starting software and finding right locations and looking at good signals. And then we send you home with your equipment and monitor your use of it for the first three months and give you live chat access to us and weekly check-ins and tech support and gradually help you tune in the right protocols uh, that are working for you and get much closer to your goals uh, then you might be able to without neurofeedback. And then after the three months, typically people keep training um, 
or maybe they add family members or something. And we offer free brain mapping for past clients uh, uh, whenever they like. So you're welcome to sort of be empowered and go forth and train yourself long term. Um, that's really a useful thing if the clients are peak performers and want to train more than a few months or if there's, for instance, lots of brain injuries or developmental issues where it takes a little bit longer to make a change because it takes you know about six months or so where there's lots of injuries or developmental issues for the more permanent changes. Um, ADHD and things, it's more like three. So if you're in that three-month range and have very clear goals, you know, finding a, a good clinician who does QEGs and can just kind of take care of it for you, so to speak, um, is fine. If you want to take control of your own perspective, then the home training program is something that we offer to get you a little deeper. Um, the brain mapping itself doesn't take very long, uh, Jason. It takes about maybe half an hour to measure your brain. And so we typically do about a 90-minute visit your first time in one of our offices where we do a 30-minute, 25-minute uh, attention test, a continuous performance task, looking at your sustained focus and your inhibitory control for audio and visual cues separately and sort of tease apart some of your performance a little bit. And then we do a, a resting QEEG, a brain map. And unfortunately, that's done without caffeine. So we usually do that the first day in the morning uh, that you're in one of our offices. Um, if you're an office training client, we typically have you come in three times a week thereafter and then just do half-hour training sessions. Just you know, throw a couple wires in your head, measure your brain. When the brain happens to move on its own in the right direction for half a second, we applaud that brain activity with more audio and visual feedback on a game like a spaceship flies faster, a dragon uh, flies towards the right target, or a Pac-Man eats dots, or music swells in volume. And when, when your brain moves in the wrong direction, we withhold the input. And the brain likes input, so it starts to notice whatever, whatever it's doing that produces stimulus or an increase of stimulus. And we then move the goalposts in that 30-minute neurofeedback session every few seconds or at the very least 30 seconds, we gently move the goalposts and nudge the brain, hey, do more of this or less of that. And it gets this applause for some of the things it's doing. And it's a very gentle, subtle process. We don't zap your brain. And you often don't experience it subjectively for a few sessions. It often takes a few to kick in. But you leave the office, and then the next day you feel it's just the tiniest bit different. Or maybe your sleep is a tiny bit different, your focus, your calmness, your flexibility. And you report back in to your coach what actually you noticed in terms of changes on sleep, stress, mood, attention, or anything else. And then based on how you respond, we tune the protocol and try it again. And eventually, we build enough of the resource that you want in the right direction. And then your brain is uh, regulating all on its own, kind of like going to a physical therapist for like a knee problem and sorting out your gait. And now you have a nice, strong, healthy gait, and you're walking around practicing those strong muscles all the time so they stay nice and strong and healthy. Same thing happens when you shore up your attention regulation and stress regulation and sleep regulation and other things. It tends to stay regulated because you use it in that way. Uh, day to day. So it tends to become this really lovely process of taking control, deciding what feels good, taking more control, pushing resources up, chasing effects you like, you know, really cementing them, and then deciding what it is you really want to work on uh, in terms of, you know, self agency and improvement. So but that, that, that's a rough program. So about 90 minutes for an assessment, and then typically three times a week for about 30 minutes. That's an amazing positive feedback loop to have that objective, um, you know, you can see the improvement measurably over time if you're working towards that. Cause that's one of the biggest challenges with making changes in general is that it's not always easy to feel. Um, mm -hmm. It's not always easy. You're, there's ups and downs as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
But so in a second, I'd like to go through, if you don't mind, maybe two kind of uh, examples, one more on the high performance side where somebody may be just trying to optimize their function in business or as an athlete, for example. Um, and then another maybe where uh, people are more trying to mitigate some condition like ADHD or migraines and trying to restore kind of uh, not not necessarily, again, get more average, so to speak, but just try to, uh, you know, get past some of those challenges. And yeah. Which one do you want to start with? <laughs> well, the ADHD one is the most straightforward to some extent with uh, with neurofeedback. So I'll start there. I mean, uh, it, we discovered in the late 60s that neurofeedback could happen, that you can train the brainwaves. And it was discovered by mistake a little bit by Dr. Sturman, who was uh, at UCLA, who was looking at some uh, proof of concept to see if you could, you could train brainwaves in cats in response to a milk dropper squirting chicken broth whenever they this brainwave surged in their brains. And yes, you could operantly condition, train this brainwave up in amplitude. It was kind of interesting. And months later, the cats that had been trained were seizure resistant, dramatically so. And then at the time in the 60s, uh, most EEG research was driven by, or EEG sort of framing of the science was driven by the sleep literature and the sleep studies that had gone before. And there was this sleep uh, inflection in neurofeedback and then ADHD. And uh, before we knew it, it was everywhere in terms of what it could treat. But ADHD is among the best validated research cases, if you will, for neurofeedback. And when you look at someone's QEEG, you see a few things. If you have attention problems, usually, again, 95% of the time, roughly. If you have lots of impulsivity, you have high theta compared to your beta brainwaves. So the brakes are off. It's, it's hard to notice only one thing because you're busy noticing everything and putting all the patterns in place. This is the hunter versus the gatherer brain. You're tuned to be synthetic and novelty-seeking and pattern-matching. That's a high theta state. In contrast, if you open your eyes and alpha waves, remember I mentioned alpha waves, if they don't come up when you close your eyes, if you stay in beta, it's anxiety or hypervigilance. Well, the opposite case, if you open your eyes and your alpha stays high, doesn't get suppressed and replaced with beta, it stays nice and high, that we would call inattention, what we used to call ADD. So that's being too much in neutral, where ADHD is having difficulty pumping the brakes. So things are, tend to react and be very almost automatic in some ways. So if I look at your brain, Jason, and I saw uh, eyes open high theta, I would go, oh, this often shows up with impulsivity. And eyes open high alpha, oh, this often shows up with inattention. And I measured your attention on your a performance test and found both attention problems and impulsivity problems. Then I would say, hey, this looks like you have some significant challenges in these two areas of regulation, you know, attention and impulsivity. Are these things you're aware of? Are they goals for you? You know? So you said yes, let's say, and we would then work on training the ADHD away. So you would sit down in front of a computer screen, look at a Pac-Man or a spaceship or something, and we would measure the theta relative to the beta at one or two spots on your head and put a couple ear clips on perhaps. And whenever your theta happened to drift in the right direction, we would applaud the brain with the more audio and visual feedback as I mentioned. And that theta would go down over time. And again, usually about a standard deviation of change in 20, 25 sessions. And so after a couple of cycles of those 20 sessions, you would probably not have measurable levels of excess theta at rest. And your performance on an attention test would suddenly look like you didn't have any ADHD. So one example, you know, sit and exercise essentially the theta down over time and the beta up over time, and it, it eliminates uh, executive function issues usually. 
Um, that same exact protocol tends to stabilize uh, inhibitory tone in the brain broadly such that uh, the brain becomes less seizure prone. So if you have seizures, have epilepsy or some other seizures, mm -hmm. the threshold goes up for how easily they can be triggered. And if you have uh, you know, significant problems, the average literature, um, Dr. Sturman did a paper about 10 years ago, the average reduction in seizures was, um, I think, more than 50%. And 5% of people have complete control for over a year after doing neurofeedback. Um, and this is not invasive. We're not zapping your brain. We're just exercising stability. Your brain already knows how to do, but maybe hasn't, you know, been good at recently and might need some shoring up or some training, some exercise. And the brain changes faster and stays changed better in some ways than the body does, you know, than the, the muscles do. So this is, the, the, the exercise metaphor breaks down because you're being exercised. The, the role of the client is not so much to sit there and try because it's involuntary. We applaud the brain when it does the right thing. It wants more stimulus. So the next day it does a little bit more of the right thing. We gradually steer that change for you and, and with your support. Um, but the process of actually training, sitting and watching the spaceship stop and start or the music swell in volume, drop in volume, you can't control one or two little bits of brain waves under one spot of cortex we're measuring. So it's kind of like reaching into a giant symphony orchestra and running over to one string player and saying, hey, that one string on your instrument is a, is a, you know, a couple of cents flat. And that person tunes up. And the whole orchestra sounds better from the maybe point of view of the audience, but no one in the audience knows why. You know, the conductor may have a sense, who knows, but the metaphor is breaking down a little bit. But this very, very narrow little tiny bit of, sort of pointed exercise can produce nice changes across the whole system. So you sit there and kind of involuntarily get exercised and then notice what's happening the next day and report in and, you know, get to steer the process. This is nice because it works on, uh, again, cats, as I discovered uh, in the 60s, but uh, it also works on things like nudgy teenagers who don't want to be there. <laughs> if you have <laughs> one of those. Or somebody who's dealing, you know, more seriously, someone who's dealing with things that are more on the, you know, emotionally sort of a, a difficult side, you know, a lot of anxiety or trauma or something. You know, you can deal with trauma in therapeutic environments really effectively, but it takes some work, including often re-experiencing some degree of discomfort and dysregulation. Well, neurofeedback, we go after the circuit that seems to be dysregulated and help you exercise it and tune it back into a calm state. So you get less triggerable from the PTSD, but not necessarily by safely triggering or safely re-experiencing things the way you might do in a more purely therapeutic or talking environment. So there's lots of ways to go after your brain. It just becomes a question of, hey, what do you want to work on? And let's try to track that resource down. Uh, migraines are a bit different. So I'll mention that because uh, you want some examples. Um, with migraines, we often think of these things as um, uh, vascular, at least I do. And I think of migraines, one of the theories that's pretty compelling is a spreading cortical depression, a metabolic area of low activity. And the cortex is very good at recruiting neighboring areas to do the same thing that uh, one area was just doing, kind of like a spreading block party. And among other things that spread is reduction in metabolic activity. And as a, like a brownout rolls through part of the cortex, the vasculature feeding, the blood vessels feeding that cortex with oxygen and glucose and everything else, will shrink down because there's re reduced need for metabolism, so to speak metabolic activity. And then that spreading area uh, of reduced depression may actually leave that part of cortex. It wakes back up, brain cells start firing. And I believe the uh, vasculature can't respond as quickly in cases of migraine, for instance. And um, 
you get this almost like a starvation event in the cells. And that's why you get these neurological symptoms of sparkly lights and nausea and light sensitivity and other, you know, things that happen, vestibular things, et cetera. And so by uh, training the vasculature, you can address migraines. So the way we do this is something called uh, P-I-R-H-E-G, passive infrared hemoencephalography. And it's basically an infrared camera. You point inward at your brain, you slap it to your forehead, and it measures temperature, which is a proxy for metabolism here. And you, as your blood flow goes up and down, as your temperature goes up and down, you see it on a screen. And you can train that up over time. And uh, this is one of the few ways I do voluntary, effortful, if you will, neurofeedback. I'll have clients actually watch the measurement of temperature on, in their frontal lobe on a trace line going up and down and hear some pitches going up and down. And practice pumping blood into your frontal lobe and into the front half of your head by being effortful with your focus or with your happy thoughts. And over time, this produces much more robust vascular sort of st stable metabolic support to the brain. And I use this in migraines as a sort of a silver bullet. It works so well that we often conclude you don't have migraines. And it, when in the field, you know, rarely it doesn't work. We, you know, they, they, they will discover, okay, this is maybe not a strict migraine. Why don't you get a, you know, you're all just check things out. Because it works so profoundly well at first reducing severity and then incidence of classic migraines. Um, so it's a different approach, but it, it's still neurofeedback, you know, biofeedback on the brain. It's just vascular training instead of EEG training. Uh, most of what we do at peak brain is EEG because we find it to be the most effective and sort of dramatic effects and can, you know, do this sort of involuntary shaping of resources over time. But, uh, there's lots of ways to do neurofeedback and, you know, you can really take control of almost any resource you can describe subjectively. That's huge. And, and I just had a lot of thoughts going around based on all of that. And one of the, one of them is, um, it's kind of interesting if, um, if people have heard me talk about uh, overcoming a challenge, a lot of times I'll say, well, uh, one of the most important things to do is to kind of find the root cause of that um, issue that you're trying to deal with. So, for example, um, a lot of things stem from like dietary inflammation, for example. Mm. Um, and uh, something like migraines even can be uh, mitigated heavily by changing your diet. But like you were saying earlier, there's a lot of effort involved in that. And, uh, and let's say that you do have migraines, you're further depleted and, and you're further kind of in a place where it's hard to make change. And so to me, this kind of seems like even if there was a root cause that was kind of outside of, um, like, let's say a, uh, a needing of strengthening that particular area of your brain or that brain activity, this allows you to actually reduce the symptomology uh, safely and at least from what I understand safely and also kind of increase your uh, storage capacity for energy and willpower and motivation to then go tackle other goals like eat better, exercise more uh, or <laughs> exercise more smartly, for example. Um, and things like that, that people kind of know they need to do or want to do, but often are kind of struggling to do. Um, so yeah, it tends to level up everything else too. I mean, as you exercise your brain, there's a, even with one single session of neurofeedback, you can measure plasticity changes in the cortex. The changeability of the brain is, is enhanced in a very measurable way with one single session. You know, it, of course, it doesn't last forever. But with ongoing training a few times a week, you're getting the specific effects you're going after for the resource you care about. Let's so you know, so if you fix your ADHD, your anxiety, your sleep issue, 
as you're pointing out, it has massive implications for other areas of performance. I mean, what's the value of getting rid of ADHD if you're a high-powered, you know, executive trying to close deals and do lots of projects, or if you're a, you know, sophomore in college trying to manage uh, architecting your time for the first time in your life? Getting a handle on those executive functions is profoundly valuable, I think. But you know, more importantly, you can literally just, uh, uh, you know, go after particular resources and. You can decide to go after things that are not symptoms. I mean, uh, one other example is um, it's a category of neurofeedback called alpha-theta, which is used you know, therapeutically for lots of things. Um, but it's also used for creativity, for instance. So you can do alpha-theta neurofeedback, which is on eyes closed, put you in a hypnagogic state, that you know, state halfway between awake and asleep that you get into sometimes probably. And I'm sure while you're there, Jason, you like solve world hunger, have the best idea for a podcast topic the next day or something. <laughs> and then you fall asleep and it's gone. Right. Well, with neurofeedback, with alpha theta neurofeedback, you can hold somebody there for 20, 25, 30 minutes at a time. And the monkey mind drops away, that receptive, open uh, state starts to surge and you get deep access to your own emotions, your own awareness, your own sort of flow states. And it's uh, well documented that alpha theta brings up creativity in a nice way. It also brings up the ability to downshift if you're overstimulated, over aroused. And, you know, it's, it's, it's the primary technique that's been used historically in things like alcoholism. Uh, to help the uh, over aroused you know, brain that requires the alcohol, i.e. the GABA, signal from the outside because of learning and it's lost the ability to uh, uh, balance its glutamate with GABA endogenously alpha theta neurofeedback retrains the ability to downshift that resource fall asleep at will without a drink and it gives the alcoholic who might be dependent um, the ability to get moderate control you know to have some t- some uh, some tolerance reestablished uh, very very quickly and so there's huge impacts on you know things like well what does that do to your relationship with substances I mean the literature uh, historic literature over the past you know, 50 years in alpha-theta suggests that it reverses the recidivism rate. It goes from three quarters down to one quarter in terms of like one-year relapse or something. It's really huge effects in, in what it can do. So you mentioned um, that you have a go-to strategy for migraines that just works so well. And and we've also talked about a lot of this almost passive training of the brain where uh, like a gym, uh, a lot of times people really enjoy um, being coached, um, either finding a good group class or a personal training, something like that, because you can just show up and you don't have to do all the planning. If your coach is good, they'll be guiding you towards your goals. And that's a huge benefit. It's a huge load off your mind. Is there anything, though, active that a lot of people could benefit from doing? And I know there's no one-size-fits-all for everybody, but uh, also kind of in your background, you have things like mindfulness, meditation, some things like that that are a little bit more of an active effort. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think mindfulness is really the core thing that everyone has access to. I mean, you're carrying around the equipment to meditate all the time, I would hope. Um, And... You know, mindfulness as a sort of, not sanitized, but simplified version of meditation um, is really just about anchoring your attention, your executive function in a specific way. And there's different ways to do it, but all of them, you know, in a, historically, I'm sure your, your listeners are comfortable with uh, meditation, but um, traditional names include things like Vipassana, 
which I would translate as uh, present time awareness, or samatha, which I would translate as single point awareness, or metta, open hearted or loving kindness awareness, or you know TM or modern variants, which include anchoring your attention to specific mantras or sounds or stimuli, colors. They're all anchoring of attention and. Uh, like you alluded to earlier, sometimes it's hard to get out of your own way to do enough of the thing you need to do to get the benefit you need to get. I mean, depression is a really obvious example and things like that, but so is ADHD. I mean, you can actually meditate away ADHD for a lot of people. Lots of great research showing you can affect executive function positively at any age, and it doesn't take a huge amount. It takes regular meditation. It doesn't take a lot of it. You know, 20 minutes a day or something would probably do it. Within three to six weeks, you'll have significant changes. Well, if you've got really bad ADHD, the idea of sitting down and applying structured attention for 10, 20 minutes a day for three to six weeks is a non-starter, you know? Um, and if you're profoundly anxious, meditation may just drop you into your stuff. So maybe it's not the first thing you want to do. But if you can do it and you have ADHD, you should. And unless it's, you know, unless you have lots of anxiety you probably should be doing it too. You know, like it's one of those universally healthy things and it's probably the most impactful thing we all have access to. I mean, there's some basics. We have to sleep adequately. We have to watch our diets and usually it's about you know, reducing oxidizing foods like sugars and extra grains and things like that these days. Um, but meditation is the next, you know, accessible thing. It's as important, probably more important, I would guess, than physical exercise. I mean, as long as you aren't sedentary, as long as you get between five and 8,000 steps a day or more, uh, you're probably okay. You know, maybe you aren't going to win marathons, maybe have some increased risk over time uh, if you have other risk factors. But, you know, 8,000 steps a day is pretty good for long-term health and survivability and affecting statistics in, you know, in terms of uh, aging. That's pretty good. So now it's really just about taking control of other resources and maximizing those. And uh, it's, I, if you're already walking around a, a, every day, then the next most important thing is sitting down and meditating or at least doing something that's meditative so that you can build that resource as well. It's as important as physical activity. You know, I'm not sure. I mean, we certainly have this trope of being sedentary from a mental perspective, sitting on the couch, you know, eating junk food and watching TV and right. getting fatter by the moment. We all know that trope. Well, that's the same thing that happens, you know, to the brain. Uh, there, there, there's stuff happening to the brain when you're sedentary that way, just like the body. So the body gets, you know, big and cardiovascular stuff fails and atherosclerosis accumulates and diabetes shows up and lots of other regulatory processes fall over. It's not just happening in the body, even though we're somewhat aware of that. It's happening, you know, as dramatically in the brain. And many of the same processes that are eroding body support, like diabetes, will erode the brain in exactly the same way and cause things we think of as mental, if you will, symptoms. So we absolutely have not only responsibility, but ability to take control of these things uh, these days. And yeah, you can do neurofeedback and take control of your ADHD, your anxiety, your sleep issues, whatever, or, you know, your migraines. But you also have the uh, uh, ability to decide if the next 20, 30, 40 years are healthy aging years with reduced illness, or if they're going to be things where you're just going to sacrifice long-term quality for short-term sugar or something, you know, or stress coping strategies that aren't uh, optimal. So, uh, you know, you, you probably hear me harping down the same theories, but I really think we have not only the ability, but um, the, the sort of responsibility as humans to live a really happy, successful, healthy, healthy life. And whatever that means to you, 
But the health stuff we're starting to get a handle on at this time frame in human history where we're living longer. Well, not the last two years of, uh, in this country. We're actually living shorter the last two years, but that's mostly due to the opiate epidemic throwing off the numbers. But in general, humans are living longer. And, you know, college kids these days, I tell my college students that uh, you're going to have two or three careers, maybe four of 10 to 20 years, not one or two. And so it becomes this question of moving through different aspects of your life and taking control. And, you know, millennials know this and some people who are older than know that as well. But your brain is no different than your body. So if it's not working for you, well, shift happens. It's going to shift by itself in response to the environment to minimize pain, maximize gain. And that can be you eating fast food on a couch and, and consuming highly uh, high reward value, highly stimulating mass media. Right. That's reacting to the hot to the environment, or you can decide to you know dial in a primal or paleo diet and to you know, develop a contemplative practice and some yoga and you know get a control over your meaningful things for you, and then before you know it, uh, you've built a healthy uh, set of resources that can in- in enjoy and engage further with the world. So this is really what I'm all about: is giving people tools and encouragement to take control. And then helping them go back to the science every so often to demystify their brain and make sure that, you know, they understand what what uh, uh, they want to do with it, basically. Well, there's, and there's so much there. I mean, you know, uh, we could we could probably go on for hours on e- each of those subjects that you mentioned. And I think though that kind of one of the key takeaways there for me is one is uh, time is kind of the most finite resource, right? And mm-hmm. so. If you can combine activities like, for example, exercise and mindfulness, like yeah. if, you're do, if you're doing mindless exercise where you're just kind of moving and zoning out and thinking about all the problems that you have, um, that's a lot different than if you're doing something that's also kind of mentally engaging where uh, maybe you didn't plan your workout for like, that's not that what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is when you're doing your workout it's kind of taking you, it's kind of dancing close to the edge of your ability every now and then so that you have to pay attention to either not hurt yourself or to do some kind of complex movement or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, and, and we know that, that full body movement does have cognitive benefits these days. You know, um, My personal strategy for sort of function stacking here for combining aspects is to do Ashtanga yoga, which I really feel combines a wonderful workout, uh, meditation, and sort of, you know, broad benefits uh, for both those things. So I finished an hour of Ashtanga and I've actually done repetitive movement, repetitive, you know, gaze and breathing and things. So I get this meditative focus very, very well. I also get a significant workout and I do it an hour and get both things done at once. So for me, it's really this uh, efficient way to go after is more more vigorous forms of self-paced yoga. So you aren't listening and following along a teacher, which can draw your focus outward, which isn't great for meditation. Um, I'm, I'm really not a fan of guided meditation for most people. I think that's like training wheels on a bicycle and you don't learn to ride the bike until the wheels come off really, you know? So uh, you have to kind of right. sit there and be effortful and bored and learn your way through that anchor uh, on your own before it really works <laughs> ultimately. Um, but yeah, that's, 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 that's my strategy for getting the most out of either of those things is to do them at the same time. Basically. Oh yeah. And I, I find it huge just to do, um, no tech meals. So when I eat, mm. no phone, no computer, basically. Oh, I love that. That's great. That's great. And that just like forces you to, I mean, what else are you going to do? You're either going to think about things that you didn't have time to think about 
or you can just enjoy the flavor of your food a little bit more, or maybe spend time with uh, somebody also sharing the meal. Wow, what a radical idea that you actually look up and make eye contact, and or or you know savor the moments of your of your of your meal. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, how old fashioned? <laughs> if uh, if anyone's ever uh, been to like Italy or Southern Europe, um, it may not be a surprise if you walk by kind of a cafe where you see. Uh, maybe a little bit of an older Italian group of friends and you walk by uh, and then come back four hours later and they're still still there. Definitely just in the moment with each other, but um, we can't all spend that much time, of course, but right. we can capture little tidbits of that. <laughs> and we must, I mean, we have to carve out, not just activity, but meaning, you know, and that's what those, you know, uh, people are doing. So I, I it's, it's about, about the meaning, uh, and we can find pleasure in lots of things, food and activities, you know, exercise, uh, vocations, a vocations, but finding the meaning versus doing things meaninglessly and by rote, as you mentioned earlier, is, uh, right. I think pretty key. And so kind of bringing it all back around, one of the things I've kind of taken away from this discussion is, um, and we haven't used the word habit per se, yeah. but when you can start to do things to where you don't have to consciously take the effort to do it every time, it becomes so much easier and the benefits usually compound or the negatives if it's a negative habit. And, uh, and so... It sounds to me like doing some QEEG, kind of getting your brain moving in the right direction and having it habitually access different wavelengths and uh, and have different activity is going to play out uh, a lot more beneficially than if you just once in a while do a mindfulness practice like once every other right. month. I mean, mindfulness builds resources too. So, I mean, you know, will you have great resources, great resource change if you go to the gym for six hours once every nine months? I'm guessing you won't. And you'll really not enjoy the half a week after each gym uh, event, you know? It, it, it won't be ideal. So, you, know, you will have change. It'll just be the form of injury. Right. And then you'll recover from it until you go back to the gym that one time a year or something. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, you're not going to injure yourself doing mindfulness, but you might have such a bad experience. You don't go back to it if you try to bite off too much. So I love telling people they should start with 10 minutes for a day. That's it. And you can do very basic practices and you should do very basic practices. I mean, doesn't, this is not rocket surgery. It does not take lots of, you know, bells and whistles and, you know, lights and flashing things and basic stuff, directing the attention, the resources you actually have. And once you learn the basics, you can take it off the cushion. And you're three, you know, uh, steps back in a line in the supermarket, and you're bored and kind of annoyed. The person who's fumbling for their change, and you know, has 19 coupons in a stack, and is, you're going to be waiting here for a while. And well, you can be annoyed, or you can drop into a mindful sort of perspective and watch your breath and you know, anchor your attention and get some benefit from you know from that time. So it's really about taking control and doing it with some regularity. But regularity is all that's necessary. Quantity doesn't really matter. So 10 minutes a day will do what you want. And if you can go up to 20, great. But you don't need to do more, honestly. And I mean, the, the old joke goes, and it's not my joke, but you know, if you can only meditate in the morning, do a half hour in the morning, only meditate in the, in the evening, do a half hour in the evening. If you can meditate for a full hour a day, you should be doing uh, both. And if you can't meditate for an hour a day, you must meditate for two hours a day. That's the, <laughs> class, you know, that's the classic, classic uh, advice because 
if you don't think you can carve out some time, you're not using your brain properly, essentially, to manage time. And if you meditate for 10 or 20 minutes a morning, uh, first of all, I'd argue you can find that time because you're wasting time during the day later. But you react differently to stimulus and with less you know, automatic quickness and more careful choice. And you're much more efficient if you can drive up that resource. And so I recommend you do it in the morning and create a prime sort of optimal resource, the, the state shift. But more importantly, if you keep doing that every day, you produce the trait shift. And, you know, it does take some time, as, as you point out, the habits uh, accrue. I think it takes at least five weeks for these things to really cement from a neuro perspective. It's about five weeks for a brain cell to uh, go from a pluripotent neural stem cell into a uh, neuron, let's say, and and then make connections in the, in the networks uh, where it will set up shop finally, but a five-week process. So you'll often see habit literature talking about three weeks or four weeks. I really think five weeks should be the goal for making massive life change just because your brain takes about that long to really cement some of the tissue. So, Right. And, and, you know, just like we were saying earlier, a massive life change can start with small steps and, um, yeah. And, and must and often, you know, to be, to be sustainable. Right. So, and without even, uh, meaning to, we kind of already covered why somebody might do or think about all of this from a performance perspective, whether that's increasing mental performance for business or, or life or generally, or as an athlete that needs to make good decisions under pressure, for example, because like you were just kind of mentioning and you kind of uh, almost like snuck it in there a little bit was um, if you take a little bit of time to do it, to, to do some of these practices or to uh, optimize your brain a little bit more, then that's going to play out in vastly better uh, decision-making potentially. Obviously, this isn't like guarantee that you're just going to do this mindfulness and then you're going to go uh, win the business lottery or something like that. Right. But um, so it, it all kind of plays back. Basically, you're making an investment in your time. So I'm investing a little today so that tomorrow my time is worth maybe 10% more than it was today or something like that. Yeah, and you really do feel like you get the time back after you start, you know, spending those 10 minutes every morning. It, it does come back with interest, you know, as you, uh, that metaphor, so. It's kind of like they, uh, they, people may read about Albert Einstein or, you know, Steve Jobs or these people who are kind of iconic, successful, high-performing mental performers. And uh, they do things like take walks or take naps or take meditations and so the message there is not that if you take a walk, a nap, and a meditation, you're not going to end up being a billionaire, for example. But <laughs> maybe the people who are these iconic people couldn't have done it without doing those things, right. right? And the ones that are billionaires who do that versus the ones that billionaires who don't do that, I'm guessing there's a pretty measurable quality of life difference. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And or, and or at least... Um, pleasure to be around difference. <laughs> right. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Absolutely. Uh, well, great. So Dr. Hill, I really appreciate you taking the time. Is there anything you want to leave with the audience before we wrap up? No, I really enjoyed being here. Thanks for having me. Um, just, uh, you know, to reiterate folks, take control of your brain health. If you aren't sleeping, attending, managing stress, if there's more significant things going on, you know, I feel for you, but do something about it. Your brain can change. And with tools like neurofeedback, nootropics, mindfulness, 
uh, and lots of other techniques, you can change brain habits and change things that we often, you know, at a popular level don't think are changeable. So don't be satisfied if your mind or brain is getting in your way. Demystify it, dig in, take control, and figure out how to steer that shift that's going to happen anyways. That's huge. Yeah. Self-empowerment agency. I mean, those messages resonate really strongly with me and I'm sure with a lot of the listeners. So this is another avenue that people can continue to learn about possibly one of the most important uh, pieces of the body. (laughs) And uh, yeah. So where can people find you online? Yeah. So we're at uh, peakbraininstitute.com. It's also on Twitter at peakbrainla. Uh, and Instagram, Peak Brain LA. Uh, I think Facebook is Peak Brain Institute. So look us up, check us out. We'd love to hear your quirky brain questions. Uh, we also do free talks at the Culver City uh, office in Los Angeles and the St. Louis office every month. Uh, and those offices also have several groups a week for free mindfulness. And we're not proselytizing, you know, no incense to smell and nothing to believe and no chanting. We're just giving you basic technique and practicing with you for a few minutes here and there for you know, over an hour or two, a couple times a week. So we encourage you to come plug into our centers if you're in St. Louis or Los Angeles. And if you aren't, uh, get in touch anyways. There's a website chat box and we'd be happy to set you up with your own neurofeedback equipment if you're far away. Uh, And if you're not far away, just come on in. We'll get you set up uh, in one of the offices. Awesome. Dr. Andrew Hill, really appreciate your time today. Thanks so much for joining. My pleasure, Jason. Nice talking to you. The Elite Academy now offers in-depth online courses on multiple subjects. So if you're enjoying the content of this podcast, but you're looking for a more structured and logical progression, looking at the science and application of these subjects, check out the Elite Academy at EliteHRV.com slash academy.